Um, so today, we are actually going to be preaching our final sermon in our sermon series, The New Kingdom. Um, and as we reach the end of the series, um, we actually end with one of the most important shifts in the New Testament after Jesus' ascension. Um, and if, you're, if you've been tracking with us for the past few weeks, you might have sort of a good idea of what I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, but before I do that, uh, I want us to think for a moment about how and why people's lives are changed when they encounter God. How and why are people's lives changed as they encounter God? And for a long time, this question has really puzzled me. Um, often I speak about the difference between knowing Christ in our mind and knowing Christ in our hearts. Uh, but the dilemma always is, well, how does that happen? How, how does God just go from pure intellectual knowledge into something that fundamentally changes who we are as a person? And to answer that question, um, I want to tell you all a pretty funny story that has always stuck with me. And it's, it's not a real story, but um, if you'll entertain me. And so the story goes as this. Uh, one day, a Portuguese explorer uh, in the 15th century took on the daring voyage of going to the New World. And he landed in what is today modern-day Brazil. And he ventured into the Amazon rainforest and through the Amazon River. And as he was going through the rainforest and the river, um, he experienced so many things. Um, he saw so many plants, so many animals. He heard so many sounds that he has never heard in his entire life. And so eventually, he has to go back home, right? So on his way back to Portugal, uh, he felt a little sad. Uh, he was eager to tell everybody just everything he's experienced in the Amazon, but he wondered, how can I put these into words? Right? How can I put these experiences into these words? How can I ever describe the night sounds of the forest, the exotic flowers, all the dangers I felt at night? How can I put these into words? And so when he finally got home, he realized what he had to do. He thought to himself, if I drew a map, then they could go there themselves. And so that's exactly what he did. Uh, he spent a few weeks painstakingly drawing out a map uh, to the best of his memory. And as he presented it to his friends, uh, the news of this map quickly spread. And by the end of the week, they framed this map in their town hall. Everyone made copies of it for themselves. They studied the map endlessly. They examined every bend in the Amazon River, every nook, every cranny. They deduced how broad it was, how deep certain sections of the river was, and where the rapids in the river were. And soon, there were experts on the Amazon, and furious debates began to happen amongst these new scholars over the details of the map. And all the while, the weary explorer thought to himself, if, if only they went there, right? If only they went there themselves, then they would really know what this map is all about. And I think to a certain extent, uh, we can all relate to the story in some way, right? Um, often before I go on vacation, I would look up travel guides and see what are the best places to explore, uh, what are the best sites to see. 
and I would fill my head with all this knowledge of Italy or France or whatever country you have in mind. But none of that knowledge will ever compare to experiencing the country for itself. Uh, imagine for a moment if you were to ask your friend who just came back from vacation, you ask them like, oh, how's, how's Italy? And they told you, oh my goodness, it was great. The Wikipedia article I read, that was the absolute highlights of, of my trip. That would be a little crazy, wouldn't it? And so today I want to talk about experiencing God and how it is the experience of God that brings radical change in our lives. And so I'd like to invite you all to turn to Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 19. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. It's a bit of reading, uh, so bear with me here. And reads, this is me, <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Uh, he went to the priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. And so Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my news, uh, to proclaim my name, sorry, to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales from Saul's, uh, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Uh, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. All right. Now, for the past couple of weeks, we've kind of been building up closer and closer to this final event in our sermon series, how God has raised Stephen and Philip to minister to Hellenistic widows, 
Uh, then we saw how Saul approved of the stoning of Stephen. And as Saul began his persecution against the Christians, uh, we saw that Philip, he fled to Samaria to preach God's word. And as we continue today, we see that Saul continues on his mission to completely eradicate Christians from existence. Um, last week, I spent a bit of time kind of laying out just how, who this kind of person is, who Saul really was. And we saw that Saul was a man of determination and sheer will, um, that he would forsake his job as a tent maker to go door to door, house to house, to find Christians. And in today's passage, we continue to see that. Saul not only goes door to door, but now he completely leaves Jerusalem itself to hunt down fleeing Christians. And that's how serious Saul was about this mission. He was not just satisfied with chasing Christians out of his home city in Jerusalem. No, he takes it a step further, and he deliberately goes out of his way to find them and to throw them in prison. So how does Saul go from a man like this into the Paul whom we love so dearly, who wrote all these epistles, whom we cherish for his wisdom and his love for God? How, does, how did this happen? So let's take a look at that in our first sermon point, uh, life-changing repentance. In our text, we saw that as Saul was going to Damascus, a city which is 135 miles away from Jerusalem, uh, the glory of God suddenly appeared before him in such a great light that the NIV said that it flashed around Saul. Everything he saw was just light. And nothing, nothing in Saul's training as a Pharisee ever prepared him for this moment. No amount of, no amount of books, no amount of memorization, uh, no amount of theology prepared Saul for his firsthand experience of God. And we can see that in our passage today, because as Christ confronts Saul, asking him, why do you persecute me? We see that Saul's actually very confused. Um, he actually replies back, who are you? <laughs> you know, despite being a Hebrew of Hebrews, despite being one of the most intelligent men of his time, when God comes to meet him, he does not even know who he's speaking to. And so Jesus tells Saul who he is. He tells Saul, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And in seven words, and six actually in the original Greek, God instantly changes Saul into Paul. And we know this because Saul doesn't, he doesn't argue with Christ, right? Saul doesn't really question the divinity of Christ as Lord. Like, well, are you really God? You know, like, who are you? Instead, we see that Saul's encounter with God actually leads him to repentance. In verse 9, it tells us that for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. That's absolutely crazy for us to think about, because after this singular experience of seeing and hearing God, it made such a deep impact in Saul's life that he refused, simply refused, to eat or drink anything for three days. Saul was so convicted of his own sin that after experiencing the presence of a holy and just God, Saul was willing to teeter on the edge of death to truly show God how much he's willing to pay for his sins. 
But the beautiful thing about this passage is that it's actually not only Saul who's changed by this experience of God, but we actually see another character uh, in this passage who has changed as well. And this brings us to our second sermon point, life-changing love. Uh, and we see in our passage that along with Saul, uh, there's another key character besides God as well, um, and that is Ananias. And what we see in our passage is that Ananias, he knows clearly exactly who this Saul character is. Uh, when God tells Ananias to go to Saul, Ananias says to him, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to do what? To arrest all who call on your name. And basically, to paraphrase this, Ananias is really asking God, are you sure? Are you sure, God, that you want me to heal this man? who's been persecuting your people? You, you know God, right? He's responsible for killing Stephen, right? You, you heard about all the other Christians that he's put into prison where they could get executed. Are you sure you want me to do this? Are you really sure you want me to heal this man? What's beautiful about this passage is that we know that Ananias' experience with God has fundamentally changed him as well. As he comes to the house where Paul was staying and where Saul was also praying, uh, we see that Ananias places his hand on Saul, and then he calls him Brother Saul. Ananias has all the right to hate Saul for what he has done. Ananias has every right to refuse to heal an enemy of God. But through Ananias' firsthand experience, with Christ, he finally understands what it meant for Jesus to tell us to love your enemies. It was no longer head knowledge. It was no longer some pithy thing you say uh, to, to your enemies to, you know, heap coals on their heads. It wasn't just an ethical practice or something you say out of duty. Uh, not anymore. When Ananias encounters firsthand what it means for even God to love his own enemies, Ananias finally tastes and sees the grace that is found in God and the mercy that he gives to us sinners. Ananias now finally sees God fulfills Stephen's dying prayer for God to forgive the persecutors for their sins. He finally sees how Jesus on the cross could pray for his enemies. And for Ananias, you know, these were no longer stories. It was no longer some theological point about God's mercy or love. It's not a sermon. It's not a lesson on love. It is now an experienced reality. And this reality profoundly changes Ananias himself as he heals Saul, not out of duty, not because God actually tells him to, but now he does it out of love. A love so deep that Ananias is willing to call Saul, the persecutor of the church, his own brother. And it's a little amazing for me every time I read this passage, because, you know, honestly, I got to say, every time I read it, I just think like, man, you know, if only I could experience God in such a way, if, I, if only God could descend from heaven and a great light shone around me, uh, that would be, you know, my life would totally be radically changed forever. 
But the thing is, God actually makes himself readily apparent before us every day. We don't need a miracle of light. We can actually experience God in our day-to-day lives. So how do we do this? How do we have eyes that see? And that's our final sermon point today. Um, And also, coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, our sermon title. How do we have eyes that see? How do we experience God so that the knowledge we have in our heads can actually travel down into our hearts? Um, Now, there are actually many, many ways we can experience the presence of God. Uh, For example, reading scripture is probably literally the best way to experience the presence of God because those are literally God's word spoken to us. Uh, But besides the reading of scripture and besides prayer, how else? can we experience God's presence? And let me list three ways we can experience God's presence. Uh, One where we experience God together, uh, one where we experience God outside of us, and also one where we experience God inside of us. Okay, so first, the first way to experience God together uh, is, of course, through corporate worship, which we've done not so long ago. And what I mean by corporate worship is when we as believers, we gather together to sing songs of praise to God. And for us as Christians, we know that we are the body of Christ. And if we gather as the body of Christ, we also know that Christ gathers with us in worship. Uh, You can most definitely experience the presence of God in private worship at home or in your car. Um, I know it has for me but worshiping together as one body, um, as a younger generation might say, it just hits different. It just has a different feel to it, a different vibe to it, where you can really experience what it's like to be before God as one body, as one church. I know for me, um, during some of my darkest days spiritually, worship was the very last thing I wanted to do. In fact, going to church was the very last thing that I wanted to do. But I realized that more than the pastor's sermon, um, it was always worshiping with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that brought deep healing to my soul as we together came face to face uh, with God in spirits. And so that's the first way we can experience God firsthand through corporate worship. The second way to experience God outside of us is to take a walk. Um, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he tells us, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been so clearly seen, being understood from what has been, been made, so that people are without excuse. And what Paul's basically saying here is that everything you see in nature, it is a reflection of God, whether it be the trees, the oceans, the stars in the sky, the pets you own, the people you see, they're all reflections of God's majesty. And sometimes it's hard to see God in this way uh, because sometimes we, as city folks, uh, we try to find the fastest way to get home with our crazy jobs. We try to find the most efficient way to get to church, the shortcuts we can take. We are always on our phones. We're always walking 20 miles an hour. But sometimes we just need to find time to slow down don't we? Time to slow down and to look, to admire God's creation the same way we would admire art in a museum. 
to slow our pace and to slow our gaze, to really take in the full immensity of the kind of God who would create such a beautiful world and who would create such beautiful things. But the final way to experience God is within us. Um, and this is perhaps uh, my favorite, or maybe not my favorite way to experience God, uh, but it is through breathing. Uh, Genesis tells us that God breathed into Adam and Adam came into life. And I wonder how often we think of our breath as being breathed to us by God. How often do we contemplate and realize that every breath we have is literally given to us, that we are alive because of God and his graciousness, that he has allowed us to have breath here today. Every breath, each breath we take is a gift of God, and each breath is a gift of God's graciousness to us, that though we are enemies of God, he nonetheless sustains our lives. And so each inhale we take, it's not just air, but we breathe in the very grace of God himself that all started when he first breathed into us. And so when we breathe, realizing this, our breath itself can become a prayer to God. On every inhale, we inhale with thankfulness. We inhale God's grace and peace. We inhale his love for us, and we fill our lungs and our bodies with that love. And on every exhale, we express to God our concerns and our worries. We exhale to God the troubles in our lives. And just as we ex expel the air out of our bodies, we also expel our worries into the loving hands of our God before we get ready to inhale and to experience the goodness of God again. And so as we go forth today, I want us to spend some time experiencing God. Uh, it's very important, of course, to study God's word and to know God's word, but it's also very important to finally understand with our hearts what those words truly mean. And for new believers or non-believers, if you do experience the presence of God here today or throughout the week, uh, but like Saul, you ask, who are you, Lord? Uh, then I invite you to come and talk with me. Uh, you've experienced the presence of God. Now it's finally time to know who he is. So why don't we come together uh, in corporate prayer uh, before our Lord today? Heavenly Father, uh, you have given us eyes to see, but sometimes we don't see you. Uh, we have the painful feeling of knowing all about you in our heads, but we don't know you with our hearts. Uh, we know about your goodness, but we have not tasted it. Uh, but we know, Father, that your presence is with, here us, uh, was, is with us here today, uh, that your spirit is in our midst. So let us experience your presence. Let us be able to know who you are with our entire beings. And through this experience, I pray, Lord, that it will change our lives. I pray that this experience will allow us to live a life that is holy and righteous, an experience that will make us love our enemies just as Ananias loved Saul. And so I pray today for my brothers and sisters that lives will be changed in your presence. We pray for those who feel like life has hit a rock bottom, that in your glorious presence, uh, you will lift them up and give them hope to live another day. 
We pray for those with anxiety, that in your presence, their anxiousness will melt away. And Lord, we pray for our church. Uh, We pray that we will be your hands, that we will be your feet, so that all who do not know you will experience your love firsthand through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.